Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Sid Hatch, a former Baptist minister and graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, explains his reasons for questioning the Trinity. Ultimately, he concluded the Bible does not teach that Jesus is God the Son, but that he is the Son of God. In this presentation, he discusses various key texts, including John 1.1 and Philippians 2, among others. Hatch gave this presentation at the Oregon Bible College, now the Atlanta Bible College, in the early 90s. Consequently, the audio quality is a little lower than uh, than what we're used to, but the content is really worthwhile. Here now is Podcast 109, Five Reasons I Changed My Mind About the Trinity with Sid Hatch. Well, this morning I'd like to speak on this topic, why I believe Jesus is the Son of God and not God the Son. Uh, My personal experience has been a transition from Trinitarianism. I started out believing in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And then, as I mentioned yesterday, I began to see that the Holy Spirit was not a, uh, a third person of a trinity, but I was still left with two gods and the deity of Christ. So then I finally came to the position, which is what we have today, one God and Jesus, the Son of God, and then the Holy Spirit, the power of God. Uh, I'd like to approach this subject the way I did yesterday, with uh, four or five categories of reasons why I've come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, The scriptural reasons, and then the theological reasons, and then third, the historical reasons, and then fourth, the practical confirmation. I see I have four, I have five if I may uh, refer us to a verse in Psalm 119 before I'm through this morning. But uh, rather than launching into my outline, I'd like to share this morning just some of the passages, two passages especially, that convinced me that Jesus is not God, but God's Son. He was fully human, and uh, I could not settle this in my own mind and heart until I had worked my way through these two particular passages. Let me take, first of all, Philippians chapter 2, and I'm not going to try to take time to expound the entire passage, but just some of the key thoughts here that settled it in my own mind. And then I'll go back to uh, John chapter 1, what's usually called the uh, prologue of John. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm reading from the King James Version, and this, of course, is the great passage which is supposed to prove the deity of Christ, and I found out it proved the exact opposite. Uh, First, I had to see that the theme is humility, uh, self-effacement, and then Christ is the great example of humility. And beginning here in Philippians 2 to 3, We read, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, to a traditionalist, and I was very much that, it, it, we would read that and we would say, there, that proves that Jesus was God. But in working my way through, I made an amazing discovery. Uh, I mentioned yesterday, I believe, that my wife and I had taken our trailer and gone to one of the camps along the Columbia River. And at a Sunday evening class, I was to teach this passage and I wanted to study it. Something said to me, go through it again. And I did it, and that was the turning point. And this is the, astonish the astonishing discovery. Perhaps you have observed this, and uh, it would not be new to you, but it was to me. I, I read in verse 6 that the little, I learned in verse 6 that the little word it is not in the Greek text. Who, being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God. And uh, we know in the King James Version, when words, words are not in the original, they're supposed to put them in italics. And they didn't do it. And I looked again and I checked it. And what it literally says is, who being in form of God, considered not robbery so as to be equal with God. And there uh, things began to work together. And I saw what it was saying was that Jesus simply considered not an act of robbery so as to be equal with God. Now this was not the first time, of course, I had observed before that it was a comparison of Adam and Christ and how Adam committed an act of robbery. The, the serpent in Eden had said, if you, you will be as God or as gods. And now I, putting it all together, I saw that the Lord Jesus would not commit an act of robbery so as to be equal with God. I noticed also that the Greek word here in verse 6, translated thought in the King James, is exactly the same word that's in chapter, uh, verse 3, where it says, let each esteem other better than themselves. And we may read it there, let each consider other better than themselves. And so down in verse 6, who being in the form of God, considered not robbery, so as to be equal with God. And then I began to realize. There still remained a problem though. What about the word form? You know, uh, well, let me just be rather plain this morning. I think the New International Version has it there being in very nature, doesn't it? Those, if any of you have very nature. Who being in very nature, God uh, considered considered it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, the word form, morphe, that's used there, occurs really only three times in the New Testament. It occurs twice here in this passage, and then in Mark at the close of the Gospel, where uh, the brief reference there to the walk to Emmaus, where it says, he appeared in another form, in another form to two of them that day as they walked to Emmaus. Now, I got a lot of encouragement here from a commentary that I knew was uh, I knew was Trinitarian, and it ends up taking a Trinitarian position. But in discussing it, it admits that probably three or four hundred years before, morphe form meant uh, intrinsic. Uh, well, the inner nature, in very nature, uh, to Plato and the Greek philosophers. 
But by the days of the Apostle Paul, this writer says, it was the expositor's Greek testament, by the days of the Apostle Paul, it probably just had the simple, plain meaning, as Adam was in the form of God, so Christ, a man, was in the form of God. And so all that high-powered philosophical theology just sort of evaporated, that cleared up that problem. Well, as we go ahead here, the King James really is very good. He made himself of no reputation. Now, there's a little problem there, too, because if I remember correctly, I didn't bring my Greek Testament with me, but if I remember correctly, the original word is kenao, to empty, from which comes the kenosis theory. Now, Orthodox theology says that he emptied himself, uh, well, one theory, he emptied himself of deity, another of, he emptied himself of all the uh, divine attributes. He never ceased to be God. That's the more orthodox position, of course. But then, in, in view of the context, I saw it simply means he emptied himself of all self-pride, self-ambition, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. And uh, this was that of which he emptied himself. I never ceased to encounter this. Recently, in teaching a class, I explained, uh, well, we, had, we went through the book of Philippians Sunday morning, and I explained here that Jesus emptied himself of all self-interest. He fought that battle out, the temptation in the wilderness, and finally in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, complete humility. It's rather interesting, and I don't mean to be very unkind to this lady, but the wife of the associate pastor was in the congregation. She got up, she said, no, he emptied himself of all his divine attributes. I had to say that, and then she walked out of the class. And uh, so that was, that was the, uh, the reaction that I got. She did have to leave, in fairness to her. But the traditional view has such a grip on people it was hard to think that she emptied herself, he emptied himself simply of all divine attributes. Excuse me for the fluster there. Okay. Well, so on it goes. He made himself of no reputation. That's all what it means. Took upon him now the form of a servant. Outwardly, he assumed the role of a servant in his heart and mind. And then he was, he was made in the likeness of men, created in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion, in schema, in appearance, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Even cross death, the terrible death of crucifixion, is the thought here. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, there are many points here, of course, but there was one more point that uh, so helped me here. One of the arguments for the deity of Christ that we encounter so often, and I have encountered, is this. That Christ accepted worship. Remember, Peter in the bow fell down and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And all those occasions when people bowed before him. And that's one of the arguments so often used to say that Christ was fully God. If he accepted worship, 
And if he were not fully God, that would have been blasphemy on his part. But here, I believe, is the answer. Every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus. And it's that obeisance which uh, the Son of God will have as king and ruler over all the earth. It's the obeisance to which he is entitled as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So uh, it's not <clears throat> the worship that would go to the only, only true God, the sovereign God. I've thought about this so often, uh, perhaps uh, Anthony and any others here with a British background can help us. You know, we Americans are not accustomed to bowing down before people. Uh, I, I, I imagine those with a European culture, uh, they can understand what it's like perhaps to kneel or ladies curtsy. I can't speak for the ladies, but uh, we don't, uh, traditionally our ladies don't know how to curtsy, do they? If they go before the British sovereign, American ladies have to learn to curtsy and bow and all of that. Well, when we think of one bowing, it sounds almost like worship. So we're open to this argument that people bowed before Jesus, it was worship, therefore he was God. But there was an obeisance given to nobility. And the obeisance that's given here to the Lord Jesus Christ is, is that which is given to nobility. Well, this helped me a great deal. But what a revelation to see that in verse 6, the little word it is not there. He simply considered not an act of robbery. We have to expand it so as to be equal with God. And it's a comparison of uh, Christ and Adam. And then the other passage, John chapter 1. And uh, I, I want to turn there for just a few moments. And then I'll go into my outline. <clears throat> John chapter 1. I'm sure we all know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I had, with this same class, or oh, a year or so ago, I had quite an experience trying to uh, bring up some of these things. And, and uh, one man, a very an outstanding member, he read it and almost thundered forth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Therefore, that proves that Jesus was God. Now, what's wrong there? Well, it's simply a little matter of reading comprehension before we go into the Word for Lagos. That man was reading it this way. This is what was going on in his mind. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Isn't that what they think when they read it? I remember back when I was a little boy in the second grade, we would sit in a circle. This has come back to me now, and I'm going to use it as an illustration. We would sit in a circle, we'd read our little story, and then the teacher would tell us to close our books and say, now tell, tell me what you read. And I remember being embarrassed. I had read, and I was so proud of the way I read, but I didn't know what I had read. I couldn't tell the teacher what I had read. And I think that's, that was the trouble with my friend and the trouble with a lot of people. <clears throat> it doesn't say that. It says, in the beginning was the Word. But what helped me with this passage uh, quite a few years ago, the word is logos. We all know that. And I, I looked up the word logos and I studied it again. And I saw it came from the word, the verb lego, 
which means to speak. Laleo means chatter, the chattering of birds, uh, or the sound of waters. That's one word for speak. But lego mean the verb lego means to express a a sensible thought, something comprehensible, something that makes sense. And logos is from that. In the beginning was the spoken word. And here was my translation. I realize there are different explanations of this passage, but this is the one that helped me. And of course, I, first of all, I noticed that the connection with the story of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I began to put the two together, and then I read it like this. In the beginning was the spoken word, and the spoken word was with God, and the spoken word was, and I still had a problem, the spoken word was God. But I was on the right track. And if the, so I thought this third mean third occurrence here, or the occurrence, the third phrase, the word was God. It must have this sense, it, the word was divine. I'm not set postulating a second God now, but it was God's word. In the beginning was the spoken word, and the spoken word was with God, and the spoken word was divine. I have a little New Testament at home. I ordered it many years ago from the American Bible Society. It's uh, Franz Dalich's Hebrew New Testament. Dalich was a, uh, a great evangelical German clergyman back in the 1800s. Incidentally, there's a small town in East Germany named Dalich. Last summer, as we drove along the highway, I saw the sign Dalich. If I had been driving, we might have detoured over there. But we could, I wasn't driving, so I didn't have much say about it. But anyway, Dalich translated the New Testament into Hebrew, hoping to reach the Jews of Germany for Christ. And in his Hebrew New Testament, he, for God here, he doesn't use Yahweh or Jehovah. He uses the word Elohim. And that was the confirmation that I needed. It confirmed what I already suspected. It was saying, and the spoken word was mighty or powerful. And I thought, well, if anyone should know what the thought here is, speaking humanly, it, was, it would be Franz Dalich. So in the beginning was the spoken word. The spoken word was with God. And the spoken word was mighty or powerful. It was divine. And that's the basic sense of, El of Elohim. Now, and there's another passage here which helped to settle the matter for me. Psalm 33. I don't have it written in my notes, but I think I, I uh, remembered correctly. It's strange, uh, folks, how the Lord will lead us. And familiar passages will come together. And so my attention, I trust by the Holy Spirit, was directed to Psalm 33. Uh, I'll begin to read at verse 4. For the word... Here the Hebrew means the spoken word. For the, for the spoken uh, word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment or justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And then, oh, how this made an impact on me and settled John 1 for me. By the word, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made 
and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And now the ninth verse, just what I needed at the time. For he spake, God spoke. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And that to me tied together once and for all. Uh, John chapter 1 with a creation account. Then I came to feel then that John 1 is telling us of the creation account. The word here is the spoken word of God at that ancient time when God made this earth with its atmosphere. And then we go ahead, the same, that is the spoken word was in the beginning with God. And now verse 3, all things were made. Now the King James says him. And the argument in defense of that, of course, is that logos for word is masculine gender. But nouns in other languages uh, have different genders. We would never say he or him for the spoken word. But uh, let's take things like faith, hope, and love. In Greek, they're feminine gender. But in English, we say it. Faith, it is wonderful. Hope, it is wonderful. But it, they're she in, in the original language. So I could read it this way. All things were made by it, by the spoken word. And without it, with, apart from the spoken word, was not anything made that was made. And literally, nothing came into existence, genomai, without the spoken word of God. And that, I felt, was the thought. The light shineth in, in him, in it. The spoken word was life. And certainly a creation out of the spoken word of God came life, zoe. And the life was the light of men. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We know, of course, there are two different views, at least two, maybe more, two different views of how to interpret this phrase, the darkness comprehended it not, or the darkness was not able to overcome it. I have come to feel as a result of this that these five verses are a little preface even to the prologue to, uh, to the book of John telling uh, how the light came finally in the person of Christ and it was rejected by the world. The light shineth in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Well, as we go along here a little farther, everything confirms it. A man sent from God whose name was John. John didn't pre-exist, and yet it says a man sent from God. Uh, it would sound that way if one wanted to take it that way. And finally, we come on down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The same individual that I referred to earlier on another occasion spoke out very clearly. Please know I speak kindly because these are friends of mine about whom I'm speaking. They may watch this video sometime. I have to be very careful what I say. So I, I speak very kindly about it, people we've known for 30 years or more. The same individual spoke up in class, well how do you, I know how you explain verse 1. Now tell me how you explain verse 14. It says there, God became flesh. 
And I said, no, it doesn't. It says the Word became flesh. The spoken Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so I think it's simply this. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, in ages past, God spoke in different ways in sundry and diverse matters. But now finally, in the end of the ages, it says, He spoke in the person of a son. And that's when the son came into existence. And that's another story too, tying together Luke 1.35 and then the opening verses of Hebrews. Finally, he spoke in a son. If the son had pre-existed and uh, he was the, had been the theophanies, the God appearances in the Old Testament, God would have spoken in a son before these last days as Hebrews 1 has it. Well, I just wanted to share some of the verses in these two wonderful passages that helped me. And I think it's safe to say that until we, or at least in my case at least, until I settled the matter of these two passages, I still clung to the pre-existence of Christ. I was a middle-of-the-roader, a sort of Aryan, all, all these years until I cleared up John 1 and Philippians chapter 2. There's another passage, maybe I can take the time, Anthony, my time is racing away here. Uh, this is this is my introduction. Two <laughs> years ago I was speaking on conditional immortality at a church in New England when I was with the Advent Christian people and I got through. One fellow said, Well, if your work is brief Bible studies, I hate to hear one of your long messages. <laughs> So I realize what I'm doing here. Uh, a third verse is John 20, 31. Now it's so obvious. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Um, I tell you, I don't know how many thousand times I read that, and I still said the purpose of the Gospel of John is to prove the deity of Christ. <laughs> I remember one of my early pastorates, soon after, well, about 1949, of starting in the ministry. I had a church near San Diego, California, and I picked up this young San Diego college student. And, and I asked, began, he was hitchhiking home, and I asked him, we got to talking, and I pressed the gospel issue a little. He said, well, if I joined their church, it would be a Unitarian church because I don't believe Jesus was God. Right away I started in on him. I said, you go home and read the book of John. It'll prove that Jesus was God. I think back on those. <clears throat> well, there's nothing remarkable about things like that, I guess. It just proved how much I thought I knew and yet I didn't know. And uh, the book of John proves that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And now over and over again, I've turned to John 20, 31. These signs, or these eight signs, miracles or signs in John, Prove that he was the Messiah. And of course, all so often, Thomas's wonderful words are cited, uh, presented to us, my Lord and my God. But we can go on three or four verses and John explains what Thomas meant. As, as, a, as a Jew, a believing Jew, he saw him as the Lord. Philippians hadn't been written yet, but perhaps he saw him as the Lord, the Messiah of Philippians 2, and my God, that the Messiah who would represent God. 
And we know in the Old Testament the word for God is used uh, on different levels. That's already been mentioned and I'm indebted to uh, some of Anthony's writings on that respect, his thesis on pre-existence, question of pre-existence in John, and the writings of some of the rest of you in, in the publications in the journals. Well, so much. These are the three great passages, if I can expand this introduction to three points. Now, my outline class, scriptural reasons, first of all. And I'll just run through these uh, very rapidly. Genesis 3.15, all the Old Testament promises. Uh, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. I think this has some influence. Deuteronomy 18.15, a prophet like unto Moses. Isaiah 9, 6, the mighty God, and that's used quite often, of course. A wonderful counselor of the mighty God is one translation, a Jewish translation I have. Micah 5, 2, whose origins, his pedigree, his genealogy, uh, his being in the plan of God goes, goes back into eternity, the plan of God. But now Luke 1, 35, the scriptural reasons. Uh, <clears throat> Well, maybe I could turn there very quickly. Luke chapter 1 and uh, verse 30, verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, to Mary, The Holy Ghost, power from on high, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And I began to realize here that we have creative force. As the Holy Spirit moved upon the waters in the Genesis creation, so the Holy Spirit moved upon Mary, and the Son of God was created in the womb of Mary. Now this, was a, this made a tremendous impact on me, and uh, I, I wanted to write it, but I, he, I, I hesitated to write it. It sound, sounded to me almost fearful to speak of the creation of the Son of God when we have believed that one existed almost from eternity. But I dared to write it. It was confirmatory of my personal experience. And I do believe what we have here. Uh, let me be a little bit, <clears throat> let me try to explain a little bit how I feel about this now. Uh, it's, a, it's a holy subject, a delicate subject. But I've used this with my class and they seemed open to it with more than one Bible class, Mary provided the mother aspect, the mother side. And God and his, a father is necessary for there to be a child. But God created that which was, that which should come from a father by creation. And uh, this is the, and so he came, he was born a man. There is the argument, of course, that uh, there might be divinity here. I'm, I, all, I hesitate now to use the word divinity. I don't mean to differ with some of you. Uh, we may feel differently on that. Because people immediately assume deity. And there is the thought, well, if it's from God, maybe divinity should be involved. No. He's creating a second man, a second Adam. And uh, as he created Adam from the soil of the earth, so Christ came into the world through the process of birth and he created the father part and Mary provided the female or, or the mother part. And so we have here a, a second creation 
starting the human race all over again. Uh, I, I must hurry along here. I'm not even going to get through my first point, I'm afraid. Luke chapter 2. You know, there's a marvelous analogy, and this helped me a great deal. In Luke 2, verse 40 and verse 52, it speaks of a human development, that the Lord Jesus was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So there's a normal, natural human development. Many things hard to explain here, a perfect perfect at every stage and all of that. I won't try to get into that. But there's an analogy with Adam and Eve. And here I must share one of my pet theories, uh, which proves to me that Christ was the second or the last Adam. Going back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, we read these words. And they were both naked, speaking of Adam and Eve, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Then it says, now the servant was more subtle. But the Hebrew word for naked is the same word as subtle. The same root there. Uh, what do you call that? A homonym? When you have a word with the same spelling, uh, with different meanings. And there seems to be a play on words. And the Hebrew verb, they both were, is the verb hayah, which is not the equivalent of the English verb to be. It means to become, or grow, happen, or develop, uh, appear. Uh, let, their, let light appear. There was light in the creation account. And I like to think that this might be the meaning. For there's not much, uh, not a great deal of point. There is a point, but not a great deal in just saying they were unclothed. And they both were becoming prudent. Adam and Eve were becoming prudent. The man and his wife, and they were not ashamed because their knowledge was holy and pure. When God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, they would meet him and they would have night school, so to speak, in the Garden of Eden. But then the serpent, the serpent came along and their pristine, pure knowledge was corrupted and Adam hid in the trees of the garden. And if we take it that way, I'll admit now this is, this is either or, controversial perhaps, but if we take it that way, there's a marvelous analogy. The first Adam was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God. He learned directly from God. And then when the temptation came, he fell. The last Adam in Luke 2.52 was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And then when his trial and temptation fell, however we interpret that, the last Adam won a great victory. He quoted the scripture and the adversary turned and fled from him. What should Adam and Eve have done? They should have quoted scripture to, to the serpent, however we interpret the word serpent. And I, to me, this analogy in human development help to prove to me the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll hurry now, class, just references. John 3.16, only begotten, refers to the fact that he was the only one begotten of God. Adam from the soil of the earth, we by regeneration the Holy Spirit, but only Christ, a begotten, a biological miracle. John 8.58 is prophecy, not pre-existence. The margins of the New English Bible, the RSV, and Moffat Bible, uh, I think, indicate this. 
They said, Abraham, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. They asked, has Abraham seen you? Why, before Abraham was, before Abraham, I am. And we might read it this way, before Abraham is born again, resurrected from the dead, I'm the Messiah, I'm the light of the world. Uh, the Jewish people will see and believe, and I, I shall be manifested. I can't go into it, but I think the thought there is prophecy, not pre-existence. I've mentioned John 20, 31, the purpose of the Gospel of John. Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord, and that one Lord is the Messiah. 1 Timothy 2, 5 calls him very plainly an anthropos, a man, a human being. 1 Timothy 2, 5. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, a son when? In these last days. God has spoken to us in a son. In these last days, not in some uh, appearance in the Old Testament, but in these last days. And then 1 John 4, 2, 2 John 7. Recently in, in uh, teaching some Sunday school lessons from the, uh, the book of 1 John, at long last I felt I got a grip on that phrase, in the flesh, in 1 John 4, 2 and 2 John 7. In the original it says, in flesh, not in the flesh. Just a simple idiomatic way of saying that Jesus was a human being and the proper relationship between God and Jesus is Father and Son, not God and God. I think that's what John is trying to make clear in his epistles. And then Acts 7.56, Stephen's testimony, he saw a human being at God's right hand. But I especially like Revelation 22.16 which just recently I discovered, and I wrote it up in brief Bible studies. Let me turn there very hurriedly. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. Here we read these wonderful words, the conclusion to the book of Revelation. Here he says, the middle of verse 16, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The written off and the offspring of David. In other words, there's still a human being at God's right hand. One of you brought, uh, brought this out already. There's a man at God's right hand. And that, that thrills me. Philippians 2 makes that clear, of course, also. A man at God's right hand. Uh, there is an ancient theory, I understand, in wrestling with this problem, some of the church fathers, one that he laid his... He be, uh, uh, that uh, on the way up in the ascension, on the way up to heaven, he was he was trans, transmuted. <laughs> there was a transmutation took place that the man Jesus was turned into God. Transmutation. Uh, if I remember right, and I think it was in George and H. Peters, he refers to it in one of those propositions. Uh, <laughs> They go on and on, but that's a wonderful work, isn't it? Uh, Origen may have been the one that held that. That he had to become a man on earth to die, and then on the way, as they say, back to glory, because they believe in pre-existence, he was transmuted into deity. And I thought, well now, in the Middle Ages, the alchemist turned, wanted to turn lead into gold, didn't he? And that's sort of theological alchemy. <laughs> turn, turn Jesus into God on the way up to heaven. Well, we're dealing with sacred things. 
uh, I guess the Lord will understand if we see the humor in some of these things. But there's no theological alchemy involved in incarnation or in the ascension or anything like that. Uh, on the way up, there's glorification, but not transmutation. No theological alchemy. And Revelation 22.16 indicates there's still a man at God's right hand. Here's a little thing that blessed my heart a great deal. Remember that wonderful story in, in the Gospels? And I have in mind Luke 8.23. What happened in the boat on the storm in Galilee? He fell asleep, didn't he? He fell asleep, apparently very, very tired. He fell asleep in the storm. But what does it say in Psalm 121, verse 4? He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And it just struck me. <laughs> it's, just, it's just childlike. I think we have to become like little children to see these precious truths. My conclusion from that was this. Jesus is not Jehovah. Jehovah, he that keepeth Israel, neither slumbers nor sleeps. But the Lord Jesus fell asleep in the boat. And then when they woke him up, he says, where is your faith? And I always thought he meant your faith in me. I'd like to suggest that maybe he meant, where is your faith in our Heavenly Father? Because the Heavenly Father was also the Jehovah, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know. Uh, that helped me a lot. It really did. I'll hurry now. We come to point number two. The theological reasons. I've written this up. This is not a commercial, but I've written it up in brief Bible study, so I won't say a lot about it. I am in John means I am the Messiah. And again, in, my present, in our present fellowship, I've encountered this argument. I am means God. When he said I am, he meant I am God. Uh, no, it, the context of the book of John means I am the Messiah. In fact, not only John, but in Mark, in Matthew. Uh, in, in Mark 13, Jesus said, in the last days, many people will come saying, I am. The translator supplied the Messiah. When Mark, uh, Matthew, in chapter 24, refers to the same statement, he puts in the word, the Messiah. Many people will come saying, I am the Messiah. And that proves right there that the I am of the Gospels means I am the Messiah. And then it becomes obvious in the book of John, I am the Messiah. If we examine the whole context. But there's the language evidence also indicates that I am in John does not mean I am God. The verb I am there is the simple verb to be. I, I am something. And we have to determine what that something is. I am the Messiah. But the Hebrew verb in, uh, in the book of Exodus where God says, I am, is, is a different word. It's not the verb to be. It means I will become or I will appear. And it's in the imperfect or future tense. I will appear. And so there are two different verbs. In the, in the New Testament, it's just the verb to be. And the emphasis is on the predicate. What am I? Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. But in the Old Testament with the Hebrew verb, the emphasis is on the verb. I, not just I am, but 
I will appear. He's saying to Moses. Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? He said, tell them I am. And I wish they had translated it something like this. I will appear. And he meant, I will do that. I will appear on your behalf to Pharaoh. And I will appear uh, against Pharaoh to block him. And so they're really two different verbs. And confirmation of that is in the lexicons. <clears throat> the same, uh, for example, Brown, Driver, and Briggs suggests that in the creation account, that same Hebrew verb should be translated, <clears throat> and God said, let light appear, not let there be light. Let light appear, and light appeared. So the Hebrew is more than just the verb to be. I'll hurry now. <clears throat> Under theological reasons, the word God is used on different levels. We know that. The third one, worship of Jesus, so-called worship of Jesus, is really obeisance to the sovereign. The Son of God cannot be twisted to God the Son. Pre-existence is to be in the plan of God. A second Adam is needed to start the human race. I'm just reading off here. Uh, the miracles do not indicate he's God, nor do they come as a result of his being God. But I feel now the miracles are a result of his messianic authority. I like to think that they are the result of the spiritual power that came on him at his baptism. This beginning of miracles Christ did in Galilee, it says there, of turning the water into wine. They were the result of the power of the Holy Spirit which came upon him at his baptism. In the book of Acts, the apostles have this same uh, messianic authority that apparently they will have in the millennium. Um, next theological reason, if he were fully God, he could not die. God cannot die. You know, I realize some of these things are very familiar to you who've known the truth for many years. But to those of us, uh, in my instance, anyway, who have gradually worked into this, uh, this has made a tremendous impact. Why in all those years in school and preaching and reading the Bible, didn't it, did, did it not occur to me that if Jesus were fully God, he could not die. Then I thought, it says, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, neither can the blood of God or a God, for a God has no blood. Man is flesh and blood. So he had to be holy and completely human, a man. Fully man is necessary to have blood to shed. I've received letters since becoming a non-Trinitarian and other people have said, in effect, and it's stated in writings, if Jesus was not God, you have no salvation. We've heard that, haven't we? I've come to feel just the opposite. If he were not fully holy, and I don't like to say just man, that leaves the wrong impression, but completely man, a unique man, we have no salvation. Because if he were God, he could not be tempted. God cannot be tempted. He could not really die, and so forth, the argument goes on. So there had to be complete humanity. The, uh, authority, so the temptations were real. Another thing, I, and I don't know if this would merit the title of a theological reason, but if we're interested in sports, I think we'll appreciate it. And I've had some interest in sports all my life. The principle of substitution. A man had to be a substitute for man. 
If you go to a football game and the quarterback gets injured, what happens? So the signal comes in, maybe from the field. Coach, the quarterback is injured. He comes out, send in, or the coach may cry back to the bench, send in a substitute, another quarterback. Send in a substitute. So what would happen if the assistant coach, the backfield coach, to say, when he sent in a substitute, he rushes onto the field, the star pitcher of the baseball team. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is this. To have a substitute for an injured football player, a wounded football player, you've got to have another football player. To have a substitute for men, you've got to have another man. And uh, speaking reverently, a god or god could not come and be the substitute because he could not die. So this is what we might call some personal, private theology maybe, the principle of substitution. I'm going to skip several here. Those phrases preferred before me mean more important than I or above I. The image of the invisible God, that doesn't mean to be God, that's the image of the invisible God. The creation, so-called creation passages in Colossians 1.16 and, and uh, any others like them, not created by him, but created because of him. Even the technical grammars bring this out. God created the heavens and the earth, ultimately with Christ in mind, because of him, the causative factor, not with him as the creation agent. That basically is ancient Gnostic philosophy, which said that a remote God created the heavens and the earth through an agent. And then those Trinitarian theologians said, well, Christ was the agent, he pre-existed, he did it. But it says God did it because of Christ, for that reason. So I come to the third, the historical reasons uh, that influenced me. The doctrine of the Trinity can be traced to ancient philosophy, Gnostic philosophy, we know that. A term that I was taught in theology in seminary is, it's in the text anyway, whether I learned it or not, is that Jesus was the anthropos, God-man. And I look in my dictionaries, lexicons, there is no such word, the anthropos. And then we hear about the Nicene Creed, Hama Uzias. Hama meaning the same, Uzias meaning being. Jesus is Hama Uzias. And so if we look up in McClintock and Strong's Cyclopedia of Religion and Knowledge, and they, have, they provide us with the Greek text of the Nicene Creed. And this term, Hama Uzias, meaning of the same, same substance, that, that too is not in the New Testament. And uh, let's see, Edwin Hatch, no relation of mine, but he wrote the book, he wrote the beautiful hymn, Breathe on Me, Breath of God. In his interesting book, The Influence of Greek Ideas on Christianity, he says, uh, he says that term, homoousios, was borrowed from ancient Gnostic philosophy. They got it from one of the Oriental cults. So that made an impact upon me. Well, others have seen the truth before us. That's confirmatory. Now when I read your writings that come forth from here, and I read uh, George H. Williams, Earl North Wilburn, and, and men like that, I realize, well, my experience is not unique. There have been hundreds, thousands, many others have seen this truth this way. And the fact that they see it through per study of the word and personal experiences 
it means so much because it, it makes us know that we're not alone. Let me just uh, share another little pet theory I've developed. Now that I've learned the truth that God is one, uh, in reading it all now and, and the various histories of Christian doctrine, I've come to feel that perhaps the very existence of the United States, not just our country, but the principle that we must have religious freedom is a rebellion against the Trinitarianism of the Roman Empire and of Europe, which up till not too many centuries ago was called the Holy Roman Empire. We know the wonderful story of how Socinus, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name, Faustus Socinus, there in Italy, saw the truth, migrated to Switzerland, then to get away from the stifling atmosphere of John Calvin, went on to Poland. And the Socinian movement started in Poland. And they developed simple principles of uh, religious freedom, tried to live for them. And then, I guess, I know we have a church history professor here. If my dates are wrong, uh, Brother Ross, you correct, uh, straighten me out later. And, the folks too correct me I should say I think it was the 1500s wasn't it but at, within less than a century they were exterminated and scattered but many of them went to the Netherlands and to Holland and so their views spread throughout Europe in the 1600s the 17th century the British philosopher who was also a conditionalist I understand he spent five years in Holland in more or less exile he read the Socinian writings. He imbibed these uh, ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and religious freedom. So he goes back to England and he writes. And then in the 1700s, there's a man in America named Thomas Jefferson who reads these same ideas from Locke. And he develops the idea of complete religious liberty. It meant that of all his ideals, that probably was the most precious to him, his ideal of religious liberty. And so, it's put into the Bill of Rights. And so I like to think, leapfrogging, the Socinians, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, and we are here today with religious freedom. And it's taken several hundred years to develop this. And I use this little story to congregations, to the last Baptist congregation I've had, to prove that to these martyrs for the unity of God's nature and being, we really have a great debt. I'm not putting other nations down. They now come to accept, develop, and practice the same principles. But how thankful we can be for pioneers who led along the way. Well, I'll close now with a practical confirmation. Uh, Philippians 1.30, I used this yesterday. Those who believe this way have suffered. The, these are the real martyrs of the Christian era. Those who believe in one God. And we could go on a long time this way. Uh, let me close, class, with Psalm 119, verse 71. I don't want to indulge in self-pity, but once in a while, to use a very street term, we get clobbered for what we believe. But God permits it. I remember when I came out for conditional immortality, uh, 
I was avoided like the plague by some people whom I had helped. Uh, maybe arranged an ordination or something like that. And I, I was drunk, kerplunk, or somebody wouldn't shake hands with me. People very close shunned uh, one. And that hurt. But now I realize there's a purpose in it. And the same thing with non-Trinitarianism. There's a certain hurt involved. But then I remember how the disciples in the early part of Acts, they went back rejoiced, rejoicing that they could suffer for the Lord Jesus. So over the years, in fact, going back 30 years to when I first learned conditional immortality, I have learned to claim Psalm 119 and verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. If everybody come around and slap you on the shoulder and say, that's great, and all of that, when we'd get so puffed up, stuck up, we wouldn't be willing to learn. But when we get a few good kicks and blows, and we turn to the Word of God for comfort, cease from sorrow, I believe is the line from the hymn, then we're willing to learn, and we learn more. And so we go on with this great privilege. Well, Anthony, I'm afraid I've gone way beyond my time limit here. But this concludes my remarks. But thank you for very much. Just a couple of notes before I let you go. First off, there is a video of this lecture that you might want to check out, and that's available in the show notes for this episode and on YouTube. Also, we have lots of other podcasts on the subject of monotheism. I have a link as well to that in the show notes. Check that out at restitudio.org or look at the notes in your device. Also, I had a couple of quick comments I wanted to read out. One comes from Trevor Vila, and he says, on my article about the rich man and Lazarus, he says, very refreshing and enlightening to read this interpretation of the parable. Several years back, I wrote a letter to a local church elder detailing my reasons for rejecting the teaching of an immortal soul residing within man. That letter later became an essay, and I put online in a blog and included a section on this parable. You have articulated it far better than I ever could, and I remember revisiting this parable for months to try to get my head around its main point. I was not aware of the relevant stories being told in Palestine at that time. My friend has recommended your podcast to me today, so I look forward to having a listen. Well, Trevor, I hope you're listening to this. Thanks for writing in. This is, in fact, a very important parable for a couple of reasons. The rich man of Lazarus teaches us really the heart of Jesus for the poor. That's the main point of it. It actually is not designed to give us a tour of the underworld or some other uh, or, or something like that. And the other is that it is that many use this parable to teach eternal conscious torment or a conscious intermediate state, not realizing that it's just a story that Jesus told to make a point. And uh, so if you're, if you're wrestling with that, check out that article. Also, I wanted to let you know that the last podcast episode, uh, which was Interview 28, Exegetical Fallacies with Jerry Weirwill, has gotten a lot of downloads, 
probably due to Brian's statement he makes here. He writes, this is my favorite Restitutio episode to date. Jerry shares exceptional information that will prove lucrative for the lay exegete and professional theologian alike. This episode met the basic requirements to be shared into a special group that I'm in, which mainly focuses on biblical languages and how to correctly interpret them. The group is loaded with professors and Bible students of all categories. The episode was liked by many in the group, so perhaps some new listeners will show up. Thanks so much, Brian, for spreading the word. And this episode, Exegetical Fallacies, I felt like was definitely the kind of episode that if you are interested in the nitty-gritty technical aspects of interpreting Scripture, you're going to love. And if you're more interested in life application or inspirational material, you are going to (laughs) hate. So I think it's so funny that it got so many downloads so quickly. But I think that's great. My goal here at Rest Studio is to have really a variety of of different kinds of presentations. If you enjoyed this episode with Sid Hatch, please share it on social media. Write us a review in iTunes if you haven't already. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear. We'll see you next time.